Hello and good evening. Welcome to another broadcast of Sunshine USA here on um, Anchor FM and uh, Spotify and some of the other platforms that we do Sunshine USA on. And this is me, Warren Landis, your host and Bible teacher here on Sunshine USA. And I tell you, it's an exciting evening. <laughs> I'm looking out my apartment window here. And it looks like we have a huge uh, thunderstorm getting ready to hit Greenville, South Carolina. But that's a good thing this time of year because uh, it has been so hot today. When I checked the temperature just before coming into the studio, it was 86 sizzling hot degrees outside. And so um, a nice thunderstorm coming along to cool us off sounds uh, very refreshing. And this time of the day, so near sunset, uh, it is unlikely that the sun will come back out and heat us up again after the storm. So that's a good thing. Amen. <clears throat> but it also makes it a very good and exciting time for us to gather together uh, for the purpose of studying uh, the Word of God. And many of you know that a couple of days ago we started uh, studying a brand new book of uh, the Bible. It is the book of Ephesians. Uh, now, I don't mean to imply that Ephesians is a brand new book. It's just that, uh, from our perspective, it's a brand new book. It's actually been in the Bible for hundreds and thousands of years, uh, to be honest with you. But it is a great book. It's got some great and wonderful things in there. Amen. So let's uh, get out our Bibles right now and turn in our Bibles to... Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 and we're getting ready to start with uh, verse number 1 um, and Paul says as a prisoner in the Lord now notice he refers to himself as a prisoner in the Lord now we know that Paul spent a lot of times as a prisoner of Rome in fact, uh, a good part of the last part of his life was spent as a prisoner of Rome. But Paul ultimately refers himself to himself as a prisoner in the Lord. Now think of it this way. Uh, what rights do you have as a prisoner? And your answer to that would probably be not many. In other words, uh, as a prisoner, you pretty much do what you're told. You do what you're told to do, when you're told to do it, where you're told to do it, etc., etc. I mean, that's the way it usually works. Uh, they, they decide when you go to bed, they decide when you get up, and after you get up, they decide what you're going to do after breakfast. Uh, that's the way the system usually works. So Paul refers to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Now, what makes Paul different as a prisoner of the Lord is this. Uh, Paul has voluntarily become a prisoner of the Lord. Now, most prisoners are prisoners because they have been caught. They have been arrested. They have been sentenced all against their will and usually without their cooperation. But in this case, Paul has chosen to voluntarily become a prisoner. 
to voluntarily um, be an inmate, you might say, for the Lord. And Paul says, as a prisoner in the Lord, then I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have received. In other words, what Paul is saying here, live like a Christian. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, then you need to live like a Christian. You need to live the way Christ tells you to do. Now, here's, here's the thing. A lot of people think, well, you know, as Christians, isn't it great we're no longer under the law? Well, that's true. We're no longer under the law. We have been granted a certain degree of liberty in Christ. However, as real Christians, as genuine, sincere Christians, you and I should have a desire to live for the Lord. And that includes keeping His commandments, doing what He wants us to do, not doing the things He doesn't want us to do. Now, some people there would say, now, Warren, wait a minute, haven't you said in the past we're not saved by doing works, we're not saved by doing good? Yes, I have said that and I still say that. But once we are saved, once we do know Jesus Christ as Savior, then that's where work centers into the picture. Because, you see, you and I, if we are saved, if we do know Jesus as our Savior, then we should have a desire to be as much like Jesus as we can possibly be. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's just only natural, you know? I should want to be as much like Jesus as I can possibly be. And then he goes on to say, with all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing with one another in love and in diligence to preserve the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. One thing I love about Paul is the fact that Paul in his writings puts a great emphasis on the importance of unity in Christ a great importance on the matter of unity in the church. Paul says this is something that we should all have a desire to be, unified in Christ, unified in the body of Christ. He said there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called into one hope when you were called one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now to each one of us, grace has been given according to the measure of the gift of Jesus Christ. This is why it says that when he ascended on high, he led the captives away and gave gifts to men. And what does he ascended mean? except that he also descended to the lower parts of the earth. Who descended 
is the very one who ascended above all the heavens in order to fill all things. Now, when Christ died on the cross, we know that he was dead for three days. And after three days, he came back alive again. Now, apparently during the three days that Christ was dead, he went to the center of the earth, and that's where he recovered those who were believers prior to Christ. Now here we're referring, I believe, mostly to Old Testament believers. And now he's carrying them up into heaven. At least that's the way I see it. Now, I realize there are differences of opinion here. But that is what I see. That is my honest interpretation. And one thing I've always said about teaching the Bible, I will always level with you about what my opinion is. Now, on that particular point, maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong. I think I'm right, though. Because I know that when I get to heaven, I do believe that the Old Testament saints will be there. Amen. And then Paul goes on to say, And it was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry and to build up the body of Christ. Now here, once again, Paul is making reference to the various um, gifts of the Spirit, and the various ways that he chooses to use us. Now in my particular case, I clearly fall into the teacher category. But I'm also something of an evangelist because I love telling people that God loves them, that God cares about them, and God wants to save them. So I would say when it comes to spiritual gifts, I feel gifted as both an evangelist and a teacher. And even to a lesser degree, a pastor. I have not been, in my ministry so far anyway, I have not been the pastor of a church. At least as far as being the permanent pastor of a church is concerned, now I have spent about five months of my life as the interim pastor of a church. During the middle 1980s, I served for five months at the Myatt Point Baptist Mission in Franklin, Louisiana, and I'm proud to say that it's now a full-fledged church on its own. It has actually survived rather well in the time period since I left. And I'm very happy to report that. And of course, a, a good friend of mine that I went to seminary with, uh, they have been serving as pastor of that church in the length of time since I left. And they have done, I think, a very good job 
of doing that. So it's not necessarily that I was such a great interim pastor. It's that the current pastor who's been there for many years has done a really great job in that area. And then Paul says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. One of our jobs is to, as the church is to equip the saints for ministry and to build up the body of Christ until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God as we mature to the full measure and stature of Christ. So he's talking here about unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's where Sunshine USA comes in. We try to give people more and more knowledge about God and his eternal everlasting word. And, and let me say something. The word of God is the word of God. It's not some man's opinion. It is the word of God. It's infallible. It's inerrant. And we can depend on it every step of the way. Paul goes on to say in verse 14, Then we will no longer be infants tossed about by the waves and carried around by every wind of teaching and by the clever cunning of men and their deceitful scheming. He says that we will no longer be infants. You know, Paul has told some of his congregations that they were spiritual babies and he had to feed them with milk and not with meat. Now, of course, we know that all babies are going to go through that baby stage. But it's only natural for a baby to grow up and to get to that point where they're not a baby anymore to get to that point where they have become fully grown and they can eat a regular diet. Amen? Amen. And then he talks about the deceitful, scheming, cunning teachers that try to take advantage of spiritual babes. You see, when a false teacher comes along, and all of a sudden they sense that you don't know the will of God, I mean the word of God very well, guess what? They realize at that point they can step forward and teach you almost anything knowing that you'll probably fall for it. You'll probably believe it. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, Instead, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. 
I remember uh, one of the pastors of my home church. I had the opportunity of preaching for him a couple of times. And he had a plaque on the back of the pulpit. And the plaque said, Speaking the truth in love. He was one of those preachers who recognized that as a preacher, sometimes he had to say some hard things. Sometimes he had to preach some things that the people frankly didn't want to hear. And that's why he said, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into Christ himself, who is the head. You see, that's the goal right there. That you and I become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I tell you, when a, a spiritual baby first gets saved, they're, after all, a spiritual baby. They may not be very much like Christ at that point. But as time goes by, they will become more and more like Christ. The Bible says in verse 16, From him, the whole body fitted and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love through the work of each individual part. In other words, we need all parts of our body. We need all parts of our body. Otherwise, we would not be a complete body. Amen. Now Paul goes on to talk about the new life in Christ. So I tell you this, and this is Paul speaking, so I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Now, when a man's heart is hardened, it's not because God necessarily made that heart to be hardened. In many cases, that heart has been hardened by the actions of the man. The man has for so long rejected the truth of God that his heart has become hardened to the things of God. Paul goes on to say, having lost all sense of shame, they have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with a craving for more. But this is not the way you came to know Christ. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in keeping with the truth that is in Jesus to put off your former way of life, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Now, 
what is Paul talking about here? He says, you know how you came to the Lord. And he says, you are to put off the former way of life. That is, you are to put off your old self. In other words, don't live like you used to live. You don't need to go to some of the places you used to go to. Instead, you need to recognize the fact that now you need to walk in the new, new newness of life. And you do that by renewing, by, uh, you do that by being renewed in the spirit of your minds. See, it all starts in the mind. You have to have a mind to be less like you used to be and more like you know you need to be. And to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, Paul goes on to say, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one another. Now, of course, that's pretty good advice to be truthful with everybody. And don't speak in terms of falsehoods. Be truthful with your neighbor and with everybody else. I remember my home church pastor said his mother always taught him Son, always tell the truth, even if it kills you. It's never right to lie to anybody for any reason. Paul goes on to say in verse 26, he says, Be angry, yet do not sin. Be angry, yet do not sin. Now, it's very interesting that Paul says this. In saying this, he's not necessarily saying that we're never to be angry. There are things that should make us angry. When you and I see false teachers at work, should it make us angry? You bet it should. When we see people engaged in all kinds of immorality, should that make us upset? Should that make us angry? You bet it should. And so getting angry is not necessarily a sin. But just be careful about what you get angry over. He also says, furthermore, do not let the sun set upon your anger and do not give the devil a foothold. He says, first of all, do not let the sun set on your anger. In other words, even when you're legitimately angry with someone, you are not to stay angry with them. You should look for the right opportunity to make peace with them. And ideally, you should, get, you should make peace with them that day. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. I knew this one man one time, he made it a point. When he went to bed at night and he was still mad at someone, he would pray to the Lord. 
and say, Lord, forgive that person right now, as do I. And the next day, when you have an opportunity, go tell that person that you have forgiven them, that you are no longer angry with them. And Paul says, and do not give the devil a foothold. Do not give the devil a foothold. Now, if we are not careful, that's what's going to happen. If we are not careful, we're going to end up giving the devil a foothold. We're going to give him an opportunity to gain a stronghold in our life. And that's why we need to be completely obedient to Christ and live according to the way that Christ has told us to live. Paul goes on to say, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing good with his own hands, that he may have something to share with the one in need. Now, you know, it's interesting. Paul, in his earthly ministry, always put a great deal of emphasis on the importance on the importance of being charitable to the less fortunate helping those who are poor and you know I have found in my experience as a Christian one of the hardest things that I've ever done is to convince Christians that we are indeed and in fact, supposed to be compassionate with the poor. A lot of times, uh, we as Christians were guilty of looking at someone who's homeless, and we want to tell them, why don't you haul off and get a job? Why don't you go to work? If you'd work as hard at finding a job as you do holding up that sign wanting free food, you might get somewhere. Believe it or not, that's the attitude many Christians have, but it's not necessarily a Christian attitude. One of the things I believe with all my heart, it's not the job of the government to take care of poor people. Let me say that again. It is not the job of the government to take care of poor people. But rather it is the job of the church to take care of poor people. We should always be first in line to help the less fortunate. Now I believe that help can come in two phases. One phase is to give the poor person immediate help. If they're hungry, give them food. If they need housing, give them housing. But once you have done that, then you need to help them become more self-supporting. You might need to help them find a job. You might help them improve their job searching skills. You might be able to encourage them to go back to school and learn a trade where they can earn a decent living. But helping the poor is first and foremost it is the job of the church and not primarily the work of the government. If the government didn't have to do so much in terms of 
taking care of the poor. Don't you think our taxes could be a lot lower? Amen. And by the way, that statement applies not just to the United States. That statement is for any country in the world. It is primarily the job of the church and not the job of government to take care of the world. We need to learn that. We need to know that. Paul says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Many people believe, as I do, that what Paul means here is that we are not to make profanity a part of our regular routine speech. I mean, let's say you stump your toe, for example. Is that toe all of a sudden going to start feeling a lot better just because you let out a few choice cuss words? I don't think so. Paul says, but only that which is helpful for the building up for building up the one in need and bringing grace to those who listen. I heard one time about a great revival here in this country. And there was this one coal mining town where the workers were basically very ungodly and they cussed all the time. And when they gave orders to the animals, they did it while they were cussing. But then a revival came to the town. Lots of people got saved. The people quit, quit cussing, and they even quit cussing in the coal mines. And then all of a sudden they had a problem. They had to retrain the animals who understood cussing, but they didn't understand normal English. Amen. Paul goes on to say, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, in whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And any time God sees you and I doing things that we ought not be doing, do you think that grieves the Holy Spirit? You bet it does. When God sees you saying things you shouldn't be saying, do you think that grieves God's Holy Spirit? You bet it does. He says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Because he says that when it comes to the Holy Spirit, you were sealed for the day of redemption. That's why we as Southern Baptists, and I refer to myself as a Southern Baptist. Now, in referring to myself as a Southern Baptist, I'm not trying to say here that we Baptists have some kind of a monopoly on heaven because we don't. I believe there will be Southern Baptists in heaven, but there will also be people from other denominations in heaven. I believe that. But I do believe that we as Baptists can say truthfully about each other that we have a desire to correctly teach the Word of God to others. And in particular, I believe we are correct in believing 
that in the Holy Spirit, you and I are sealed till the day of redemption. In other words, a Southern Baptist, one of the things we believe is that we have eternal security. We have eternal security. Amen. Eternal security. Think about that. It's a wonderful thing. Eternal security. In other words, if I get saved today, I don't have to worry about getting saved again tomorrow or the next day. In my case, I got saved back in November 1969. And ever since November 1969, I no longer have to worry about getting saved all over again. Again, I was saved one time, one time for a lifetime. And I consider that to be a very good thing. Eternal security. Now think about it this way. If you could lose your salvation, if it were possible that you could lose somehow your salvation, how many sins would it take for you to lose your salvation? The answer is one sin. So it's a good thing that we believe in eternal security, or should. Paul goes on to say, get all bitterness, rage, and anger, outcry, and slander, along with every form of malice. In other words, get rid of all this. I remember when I was in the seminary. We had a student in the seminary, he didn't realize it. But he had a problem with anger. I mean, man, he would get angry at the drop of a hat. And I remember me and some of my friends at the seminary, we decided to do an intervention. And we explained to him that he did not need to be so angry so much of the time. And you can imagine what his response was. I'm not angry. And he said it loud and clear. He didn't realize that he had the problem that he had. Notice Paul says here we need to get rid of any form of malice. Malice. Hatred. Dislike. The people we go to church with, we need to recognize that if they are saved, if they know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, then we should not have any malice against them. We should love them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. Amen? Paul goes on to say, Be kind and tender-hearted to one another, forgiving 
each other. Just as Christ God forgave you. Now sometimes it's possible, sometimes a Christian may end up hurting us very badly. And sometimes, believe it or not, they may not even realize it. But the Bible says in such a case we are to forgive that person. And by the way, you have to forgive that person whether or not they're seeking your forgiveness. We have to forgive that person. And it should always make it easier to forgive them if we recognize that after all, it was Christ who forgave us. Now we're going to go on to Ephesians chapter 5. Now, of course, I do this knowing that we are in a book of the Bible that I think has only six chapters. Yeah, six chapters. So we are now going to the next to last chapter of Ephesians. Now, I can tell you with pretty much assurity we are not going to get to Ephesians chapter 6 in this session. We may not even finish Ephesians chapter 5 in this session. We'll simply go as far as we can. Paul says to be imitators of God, therefore as beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant sacrificial offering to God. So Paul says we are to be imitators of God. You and I as Christians ought to have a desire to be just as much like God as we know how to be. Now how do you do that? Well, I know this sounds a little bit like a broken record, but you do that by spending time in the Word of God. That's how you do it. Spending time in the Word of God. Listening to radio broadcasts like Sunshine USA. And then he says, walk in love. One of the defining characteristics of us as Christians ought to be the love that we have for each other. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant sacrificial offering to God. Paul goes on to say in verse 3, but among you, as is proper among the saints, there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or greed, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or crude joking, which are out of character, but rather thanksgiving. For this you can be sure, no immoral, impure or greedy person that is an idolater has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So he says that we must 
refrain from even the hint of sexual immorality. We can't justify something by saying, well, you know, that's just the way things are nowadays. We live in a different day and time. God doesn't care about that. God wants us to live in a way that honors and glorifies Him. He talks about giving up obscenity, foolish talk, and crude joking. When I see the word obscenity there, I think about the Internet. Now, just as I and other Christians try to use the Internet as a means of teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel, there are those who get on the Internet and they want to do something dirty or they want to make something dirty out of it. Sometimes at work, you might notice that some of your co-workers are guilty of crude joking. <clears throat> that should never be part of our lifestyle as a Christian. We should always have a desire to um, be as much like God as we possibly can be. And certainly not be part of any crude joking or immoral behavior. And if that's not enough encouragement, Paul reminds us that such immoral people will never inherit the kingdom of God. Paul goes on to say in verse 6, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things the wrath of God is coming on the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. Notice it says here the wrath of God. You know, a lot of times part of our problem is we spend too much of our time wanting to hear about how good God is and how gracious God is. And, of course, God is all that. But there is such a thing as the wrath of God. God cannot stand sin. He cannot tolerate sin. It must be punished, and he will punish it. And so if you want to encounter the angry, I mean, the, the anger of God, just keep on sinning and you will find it. And then Paul goes on to the subject of being children of light. Paul says in verse 8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For in the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Test and prove what pleases the Lord. He says, don't walk in darkness. You used to be one who lived a life of darkness, but now you are to walk as children of light. You are to walk in the light of God's word. He says, test and prove what pleases the Lord. And whatever pleases the Lord, that's what we ought to delight ourselves in doing. Verse 11, Paul goes on to say, Have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. 
In other words, when someone's living in an ungodly manner, don't have anything to do with them, but rather, Paul says, expose them for what they are and who they are. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. You know, I imagine that you and I don't know half the wicked stuff that goes on in the town or city in which you and I live. I'm sure there's a lot of ungodly stuff going on there. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that is illuminated becomes a light itself. So it is said, Wake up, O sleeper. Rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Paul goes on to say in verse 15, Be careful, attention then, to how you walk. Pay attention then to how you walk. Not as an unwise, but as a wise. He says, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. He says, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. You and I should make use of every opportunity we have every day to do something for God. And trust me, there's opportunity there if we're just looking for it. We can do something for God. And by the way, just because you're at work, don't think you can't do anything for God. There's always going to be a discouraged co-worker that you can reach out to. You might have a co-worker that is going through some problems in her family. And this could be a time that you could reach out to them and offer them wise Christian counsel. So there are ways to do ministry even on the job. He says, therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless indiscretion. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I am recording this particular broadcast on a Friday evening. It is the start of a weekend. And no doubt there's going to be all kinds of people tonight that are going to go out and get drunk. That's just what they do. Every weekend it's the same thing. They go out and get drunk. Boy, they just want to have a good time getting drunk. When Monday morning comes around, they won't remember too much about what they did this weekend because they spent pretty much all weekend just getting drunk. But he says, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to reckless indiscretion, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Now let me ask you this question. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? To be filled with the Spirit means that you and I are to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are to live lives that are under the control of God's Holy Spirit. Paul goes on to say in verse 19, Speak to one another 
with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God, the Father, for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, we would say Paul really begins to shift gears in a big and noticeable way. Because next, Paul is going to start talking about the relationship between wives and their husbands. Here Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. He says, wives, submit yourself to your husbands as to the Lord. Now, by the way, I believe very wholeheartedly in a Christian marriage, that's the way it should be. The wife is to commit herself to her husband. And not just to commit herself to her husband, but to submit herself to her husband. I have been told that one of the phrases that has been taken out of the modern marriage ceremony is that part of the ceremony where it talks about wives obeying their husbands. Well, that might seem old-fashioned, but that's actually what the Bible teaches. As a husband, your wife is to submit herself to you and to your leadership. Now, if you lead her falsely, if you lead her in a wrong way, then that's something you're going to have to deal with God about. But you are to submit yourself to your husband. I heard one time about a woman that went to a revival meeting, and all of a sudden she had a desire to go to Africa to be a missionary. She went home, she talked to her husband about it. He wouldn't hear about it. He had no desire to go to Africa to be a missionary, nor did he want her to do it. But she was convinced that God wanted her, as a married woman, to go to Africa to be a missionary, even if it meant she had to go there alone. When her husband wouldn't agree, she left her wife, rather she left her husband and kids in this country, and she went to Africa to be a missionary. Now, in this particular situation, I can almost assure you, it was not God's will for her to go to Africa to be a missionary. Because her husband did not approve. Now, if the husband is wrong, then the husband will have to answer for that. But the wife has the duty and the responsibility to submit herself to the leadership of her husband. It says, for the husband, and, and don't take this the wrong way now, it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Now, I want you husbands to know 
that Paul is not just talking to the women here. He's also talking to you men. He says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish but holy and blameless. And so as husbands you are to love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And that includes loving her with a love that is sacrificial. Paul goes on to say, In the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife Chapter 5, and that means that we are just about out of time. Now, I didn't realize that I'm just now looking at the clock and realizing that in just a little over four minutes, I'll be off the air, <laughs> using up all of my allotted time, but that's okay. It's good to get so much into the Word of God sometimes that we just get carried away with the time. But this is Warren Landis saying goodbye, God bless you, and I'll see you next time on Sunshine 
U.S.A.